You are listening to the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship Podcast, which comes from the Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship Church, located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Today, Pastor John is preaching the sermon, The Lord Most High, from Psalm 47. The Bible indicates that a person can be so overwhelmed with joy that they cannot help but burst into singing. Have you ever been that full of joy? Is there anything that can so move you that you cannot help but break into song? What would it take to make us that joyful? Let's talk about it today as we study Psalm 47. Well, welcome. This is the video for Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship's church service on Sunday, November 8th, uh, 2020. For those of you who are watching who are uh, not uh, attending or a part of our church, we welcome you to come visit us and check us out sometime. Um, for those of you who are watching from home because you're ill or otherwise uncomfortable coming out during these COVID uh, pandemic days, uh, thank you for remaining faithful to our church by attending through this video medium so that you can participate in our um, church life and our prayer requests and other kinds of things like that. And then also a special thank you to you if you're one of the um, BFGs and our church we call Bible Fellowship Groups is our group uh, ministry. We're a small groups ministry and we have a rotating worship from home schedule where various BFGs take turns staying home so that our attendance at our in-person services are not above our limit. And so uh, we're just grateful. I'm grateful to you for uh, volunteering to stay home this week and for being able to um, worship with us as a church from home. So today we are going to continue our series on the book of Psalms. And uh, today in particular is Psalm 47. And so I would like to read it for us and then we'll talk about it. So Psalm 47 is nine verses long and it starts, Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to the God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid sounding, the sounding of trumpets, Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations, God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God, he is greatly exalted. Uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, for the way that you share it with us, and, and the variety that we find in the book of Psalms about how to lament and how to rejoice and how to find peace and how to suffer well. And, and in today's psalm, as we study your word about how you, worthy you are of praise and how our response ought to be singing, I pray that you will um, help us understand it better today. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to start by um, asking a question. Have you ever um, 
had such overflowing joy in your heart that you just couldn't help but sing or shout. Um, if I asked you to think through your life, when was the time that you were so joyful that you just couldn't help but but sing? And if I if I started to answer my own question, my first thoughts are I'm sort of a, a boring personality, and so. My first thought is, well, there's never been a time where I had to sing. I could have always controlled myself. And that's, I'm not talking about uncontrolled, out of control, irrational singing. I'm talking about a time in your life where you just, the natural response, it was easy to sing. How about if you're like me, it was easier to sing than normal. Um, some of you I know probably could answer that uh, which time of the day, right? Because you can sing every day. But others of us are a little bit more laid back or or melancholy and um, just personality types. But either way, there is a type of news, there is a joy that can come to our life through, well, I think through our experience of God, that compels us so much to respond with joy and singing, with shouting and singing. I'm glad that the author throws in shouting as an option, so for those of us who don't carry a tune so well, we can still make loud noise. But the point is, is that there is a, a set of news, there is news that's so great that we would respond with singing. It, we have to respond with singing, we just can't help it. And so as we study the psalm today, I, I want to kind of focus on three verses, and there's four uh, terms or four phrases in each of those are in those verses that are basically our outline today. So the in verse 2, for the Lord Most High is awesome. So I want to spend some time talking about what this Lord Most High refers to. And then the great king over all the earth. So the second point today will be about the king. And then he subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. And so subdued or the victory of God is one of the things that I want us to talk about. And then the fourth one would be, verse 4, He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. And so uh, those four points will kind of guide us today. Um, each of the first three points have three sub-points, and then the last one has maybe five or six points. So if you're taking notes, leave some room. But there's basically those four terms that we're going to work through. And I think it will help us understand what the psalmist is saying. So the first, uh, the first phrase that we want to focus on is, For the Lord Most High is awesome. He's the great king over all the earth. So the Lord Most High. And so my first point is that God is creator. That God is the creator. So I could have said God is most high, and that would be just as valid. But the reason I went to creator is that this term, um, God Most High, is sort of a synonym for the creator. The very first time that we see the term most high used in the Bible is when Melchizedek blesses Abram, and then um, Abram also responds to a question from the king of Sodom. So here's that passage in Genesis chapter 14. Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, to Yahweh, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And so in Hebrew parallelism, and again, Melchizedek said the same thing. So when you talk about the Lord Most High, you're talking about God in the highest definition that you can come up with. And the most uh, significant or one of the early 
characteristics of God Most High is that he is the creator. That is what makes God different than non-God. God is uncreated. He self-exists. He's a being who doesn't need anybody else to make him. He doesn't need time and chance to make him. He already was. And so he's, a, he's a, of a completely different category. He is God Most High. He is the creator. So Lord Most High is a reference to creator. And I just want to spend a couple of thoughts about um, what it means for God to be creator. And again, these are, are thoughts that the psalmist is leading us to, to meditate deeply on the text and then to see what would be the reasons that we would break into song. And so the first thing I want to say about God as creator is that God created out of nothing. When you and I participate in the creative process, when somebody says, oh, you're so creative, um, if you think about it, everything that we ever do that's creative is always mediated. There's always some media that we work with. We have to paint with paint. We have to sculpt with uh, rocks or with clay. We, we Even with music, we have to take uh, pre-existing um, musical instruments that have been made and constructed and put together um, sound waves that are, are um, pleasing to the ear. And so our creative processes as human beings are always mediated. We need something else to start with as our starting point, as our, our, our raw material. But God created everything out of nothing. There was no material that he started with he self-exists and has always been, and he caused things to be out of nothing. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing when you realize how powerful he must be. It'd be one thing to build the greatest uh, mountain ever out of all of the rocks in the universe, but that's quite a bit less impressive than being the one who caused all of the rocks in the universe to come out of nothing, to just start by the power of God's word. Look at in Genesis um, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so it, he, it, the, the text just tells us he caused it to be. But even in after this first statement, look at the characteristics of what he worked with. The earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so... Even after God causes the heavens and earth to exist, his starting point is a formless, empty, dark void. There's nothing there. Darkness is, the def is by definition, is the absence of light. It, it's not even a thing, except that in terms of it's the absence of light. And formless and empty, it, it was a void in every sense. And God is so powerful that he made things out of nothing. So we, should, we need to understand who we're talking about here when the psalmist says God Most High. So God Most High is the creator. God created out of nothing. And then the third thought I wanted to share with us on this is um, his greatest creation. What is God's most cool creation? What's his greatest creation? Or if God wanted to make the greatest possible creation, what would he do? What, would, what could be theoretically the greatest creation that a God that the God, that the one and only God, could make. And the first thought might be that the greatest thing that God could ever make would be another God. But by definition, the God that God created would be 
a creature. He would be derived. He would be contingent. The one and only Most High God who creates all things self-exists. And if he were to cause another uh, being to be, then he would that being that he caused would be contingent. It would be dependent. So God can't create another God that would be irrational. It's impossible for that created God to actually be God because he would be created. He would not be self-existent. So what would be God's greatest creation? And when you think about it, it's, 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 it's scary, cool. And that is that God's greatest creation is the one who's like God. God can make an analogous being, and he created human beings. Look what it says in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness. And so God is, of all of the creatures, of all the things that God created, the stars, the, the, the incredible galaxies, the beautiful mountains, the rivers, all of the animal life, the sea teeming with fish, and the sky teeming with birds, of all those things, he made one creature that was most like him. It's the closest God could ever get to creating God, except that he makes an, a, a creature who is like him, who is in his image and in his likeness. And it goes on to say, so they were, he, he made them so that they, the reason he did is he wanted them to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over the creatures on the ground. The point is, is that when God creates human beings, when he fashions Adam out of the dust, and then he creates and fashions Eve out of Adam's rib, that he sets them to rule over the his creation. He he is, we as human beings are most like God than any other uh, creature in the whole creation. We're the most like God. And so God made us that way so that we would be his representatives. Do you realize how privileged you are as a human being to be created in God's image. The fact that you are in God's image gives you inherent intrinsic worth. Whether you perform well or not, your value comes from who you are and who you are like, not from anything that you do. The other thing that is interesting to me about this is that we uh, we've fallen into sin. We feign that we don't know what God is like and we get frustrated, but you know, the most accurate understanding of what we, of what God is like, would come from an understanding of what a human being is like. It's, we are the most analogous version. We are just, we are not exactly like God. We're not infinite. We're not self-existent. We're not omnipresent. We're not uh, omniscient. We can't, we don't have strength to do everything. So we're not exactly like God, but we're the most like him. We're the most analogous. We are creative. We are, we are able to participate in language. We're able to um, appreciate beauty. We're also able to have a moral capacity. And sadly, we took that moral capacity and fell into sin. But the point I wanted to make is that God is the creator, and it's a pretty awesome thing. He made everything out of nothing, and we are his greatest creation. Human beings are the most like him. And, and because we're the most like him, then Jesus can come into the earth and be both God and man. He's the perfect um, mixture of those two natures. Well, so that's the first phrase out of that psalm, that God is the God most high. 
So the next one I wanted to look at is that God is the king. If you look again at verse 2, For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great king over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. And then jumping down to verse 6, Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king. Sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. And so this idea of God as king is, is, um, is just amazing. I, I, we in our democracy maybe don't like the idea of a king so much, but a king as a concept is something that our hearts are drawn to. It's in, it's in literature, it's in our history, and a good king is the greatest possible thing. A bad king could almost be the worst possible thing, for sure. But a king is a person who rules well over his kingdom, who is fair and just, who is gracious and kind, who is righteous and holy, and will not tolerate evildoers. And so God is king. What a what a reminder for us. You know, our, our nation just finished its election week, and the world is always a place of human government, but God is king. So as we think about that meditation on what God is king, I, I have, a, again, three points that I wanted to make. First of all, the, the idea, I wanted to remind us that the first Adam failed. God made Adam and Eve to rule over, to rule over. They were the kings of the earth. They were the ones who were supposed to be in charge. Like I said, a good king is a perfect and wonderful ruler. But the first Adam failed miserably. Miserably, he, he and uh, Eve, they, they fell into sin. They broke God's law. They defied God's law. They, they wanted to rebel against God. And so it, instead of being the under-shepherd, the under-king to the God, the mighty king over the earth, Adam failed. Look at what Romans says. He said, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's through Adam, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And so the, this is just one of the many places in the Bible where we see that Adam brought sin into the world. And that's why death is here. And, and that's why sin continues. And so the world is an evil place because Adam failed. So Adam failed. But Jesus is the second Adam. The Bible talks about um, you know, that Adam is the son of God in a creature way. And now Jesus is the Son of God in a different kind of creature way. In some ways, he's the new creation because instead of taking the dust of the ground to form um, Adam, in the case of Jesus, the Holy Spirit who hovered over the earth also hovers over Mary and takes the pre-existing materials of her body and creates a human being who is then also in, in uh, totally the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. So these two, um, these two natures are found in one person. Jesus is a human being. He's a, he has a finite starting point as a human being, but he's also the infinite uh, God. And so he's one person. Jesus is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. It's a mystery we can't understand. It's the greatest mystery of all of history. The Bible even says so, the mystery of of godliness, the mystery of Jesus coming to earth is beyond understanding. But what's really cool then is that Jesus comes onto the scene and does it right. Adam failed by eating fruit in the midst of the bountiful Garden of Eden. 
But Jesus is tempted in the barren desert after 40 days, and he does not fail. And so Jesus does not fail. And he's really, he's awesome. Look how Peter summarizes it. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and power. So when Peter testifies as an apostle, I'm telling you, we didn't make this up. We saw the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there on the mountain, on the on mountain of transfiguration, where Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so near the end of Jesus's public ministry and before he goes to the cross, Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain and they hear God's voice from heaven say specifically, I am well pleased with my son. You see, Jesus does not fail. Jesus does not fail to do the work of living a perfect life, of reversing the possibility or of reversing the curse through and for those who trust Jesus. Jesus comes and conquers all of his enemies and wins the end. And so um, God is the king. The first Adam failed to be a qualified king, but Jesus does not fail. And the Bible makes it clear that Jesus will rule all of creation as the king. So the king of the future, the king of all creation, is not just God. It is God the Son. It's, it's the man God, man, Jesus. And so the king, the king of all future days, the end of eternity, all forever and ever, is the great King Jesus. And I wanted to just read for you as a reminder, because I, I, when I meditate on texts like this, these are the things that come to my mind, and I want to share with you the, the other parts of the Bible. And so where do we see Jesus ruling all creation as king? And I go to Revelation chapter 19. And John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. The rider is Jesus. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and his head are, or on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Jesus' own blood. And his name is the Word of God. Remember John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So this rider on the horse is God himself. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Um, not, uh, you know, I, I hate the picture of a sword coming out of this, but the, this is a, a metaphor. The Word of God is a sharp sword that what he speaks comes to pass. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. That's a quote right out of Isaiah. Unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll rule the whole earth. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Jesus has already experienced the wrath of God on the cross and has been vindicated and risen from the dead. And now as judge of all the earth, he he treads the winepress for the judgment on the nations. And then verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. And so there's a name written on this king. There's a name written on this rider of the horse. And that name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no other who is higher than Jesus. So God is the creator. God is the king. Adam fails and Jesus does not fail. 
So the third phrase I wanted to pick up from the um, Psalm 47 is that God is victorious. And I started out with this point being uh, God is the subduer, but subduer is sort of a hard word to spell and we don't use it very often. But the uh, it is a synonym for victorious. When you subdue your enemy, you're victorious over them. And look again how the psalmist says it. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great king over all the earth. And then this third point, he subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. So God is the is the one who um, who comes and subdues the nations. He's victorious over them. Uh, the implication when when you use the word subdue is that there's some sort of rebellion that rises up, and the the victorious one fights against or overcomes. They subdue the rebellion, and so there's a two part action implied. And just like I've said with the word victorious, when a victory implies a battle. And so a victorious over that enemy. Later in the psalm, look in verse 9, it says, The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. So God is the subduer of all the nations. And so their most elite people, the, the nobles, at, in the future, in the end of time, they assemble just like the people of the God of Abraham. They assemble just like the chosen descendants of Abraham. They're the, they're the people of God. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. So God is not a God of just the Jews. He's not a God of just those who will proselytize into Judaism. God is the God of all the nations. And he's the one who assembles them, Jew and Gentile, before him. And all of the kings of the earth belong to God. He is the great victor, the great victorious. And so I have three aspects of what it means for God to be victorious. Um, first of all, I want to say that Jesus is victorious over all enemies. So the definition of enemy, for Jesus in particular, is a broad definition, right? He had earthly enemies, the, the Pharisees and the scribes who wanted to put him to death, the, the rulers of Rome. And so there was earthly enemies or people who hated Jesus because of what he represented, just like there are people who hate Jesus today because they don't want to bow down to this king. So if you want to be your own king, and Jesus claims to be the greatest king, and he is, and he owns you, there's a conflict there, and you don't like it, and I don't like it. And so unless Jesus' grace comes into my life so that I submit to him, then I can only look forward to being subdued by him. I'm going to be defeated. But Jesus is victorious over all enemies. So human enemies, but there's also the enemy, Satan. Remember, he was the one who tempted Eve, and the Bible predicts that a seed of the woman will come, and he will crush the serpent's head, but his heel will be bruised. And so Jesus is bruised on the cross, but he crushes Satan, and he, so he defeats his enemy there, and he defeats the great enemy, death. So I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but the point is that Jesus is victorious over all enemies. Look at how Hebrews 10 says it. When this high priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So this is Jesus doing his work, and he seats, sits at the right hand of God right now. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. And so the time is still going. The end has not come yet. That final judgment has not occurred. And so Jesus is waiting for the fulfillment of the promise from the Psalms that God says, I will make all the kings of the earth, all of your enemies, your footstool. And the reason he's able to sit and wait 
is for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so you and I who are in the process of being made holy because we believe in Jesus, we're growing, we're being sanctified, we're being set apart, we're being made holy. You and I, he has already made us perfect forever, positionally. We're already in his family. We're already in his kingdom. And he's working on making our experience catch up with our position. We are already fully sons of God, but we still behave poorly like slaves, like sinners, but he's working on it and he's making us holy. But the reason he can wait is because he did that work. And so he will be victorious over all of his enemies. And another thing I want to say is that Jesus is specifically victorious over the evil one. There's lots of places, even in the Lord's Prayer, it says, um, you know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And the evil one will not have power. And the Bible talks about how at the end of time, Satan will be bound and thrown into the lake of fire. And so, um, and even in the day when Jesus was here, the enemies, um, the demon possessed, the demons would speak to Jesus. And they knew that he was their judge and king and he was going to overcome them. And, and they begged him not to throw them into the abyss before the appointed time. So Jesus is victorious over the evil one. I, there's so many places I could go, but I just wanted to pick up this little phrase out of Thessalonians. The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. What a comfort it is for me to know that Jesus has been victorious over the evil one, but he's also victorious and can protect me from the evil one. I do not experience the direct assault of the powers of the evil one as much as I would were it not for the fact that Jesus himself protects me from the evil one. And he protects you and I. And the more we yield to him, the more we are protected. And so that's an encouragement that Jesus is victorious over the evil one. It's enough to make you want to sing. But then look at this. Jesus is victorious over death. So our great enemy is death itself. Look at how Paul talks about it in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So here we are facing, I mean, I know what it's like to be at a funeral. I know what it's like to be in the hospital room waiting. Is this the last breath that my loved one will breathe? Is this the end? And we hate it and we're afraid of death, but, but there's a victory over death. That we're, and so we can taunt death. We can say, where's your victory? Where, oh, death is your sting? Why is your sting gone? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is love, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is wrapping up his whole discourse in 1 Corinthians 15 about how Jesus rose from the dead and by so doing conquers death. And so Jesus is victorious over death. So Jesus is victorious over all of those things, his enemies, the evil one, and death itself. So those are our first three points. And so now I want to talk about God is chooser. God is chooser. Look at how in verse 4, the psalmist says, He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. Now, if you are um, very familiar with the Bible, there are some references in this, the intertextuality going on, that just starts to get louder and louder in your thinking. What is our inheritance? Our inheritance is... Um, our future home in heaven. For the Jew, it would have been the land, but it extended beyond that land. And, and God promises to bring 
uh, his new uh, city, the city of Zion, to the new heaven and new earth, and all the earth will be his land. And so it's, it's temporal, but it's eternal, our inheritance for us. And the New Testament makes it clear that, that we are co-heirs with Christ and we inherit with him. And so he chose our eternity for us. He chose the fact that we would be included in those who are inheriting God's blessing. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And then it talks about the pride of Jacob. And I'm kind of pleased that not that long ago when we were talking about one of the Psalms that we went into the details of the, remember we talked about the God of Jacob, the God of Jacob, what does that mean? And we, we kind of recovered or rehearsed all of the events of Jacob's life and how God worked in Jacob's life to change him from a, a rascal, heel-grabbing deceiver to a person who manipulated God to a person who made deals with God, and then a person who actually trusted God and ultimately gave it all to God and became Israel. And so God, the, the pride of Jacob, is the God of Jacob. This is not Jacob being proud of himself. It's the inheritance that Jacob is proud of because God has given it to him. And look at the phrase, whom he loved. There's a specific reference here to the prophecy before Jacob was born, remember when Isaac, his wife, um, Rebecca, and she has twins in her womb, and they're warring against each other, and she can't figure out what's going on, even in their in in the womb they're fighting, and and the angel or God tells her that there are two nations in her womb, and that the elder will serve the younger, and that Jacob he loved, but Esau he hated, and so somehow. Jacob receives the love of God. And so this is a, a reference to the choosing power of God. And so God as chooser is kind of a um, kind of a frightening topic for a lot of people. It feels like an insult to us. And I'm not trying to get into all that today, but I just want you to, to sit back a moment and think through what it means for the Bible to say that God chooses those to whom he gives mercy. You see, what we're talking about here is pure grace. Grace is the idea that we have something that we don't deserve given to us, and that the person who gives it to us is not in any way obligated to do so. You know, we, we would sometimes think that a parent could give um, their children a gracious gift because they didn't do anything. So there's the component that the child didn't deserve it, so it was a gracious gift. It was a gift that was grace. But there's sort of an implied responsibility behind the parent-child relationship that a parent is sort of obligated to give to the child occasionally or in some ways because of the definition of the relationship. There's a there's a whiff, a small whiff in there of a of the idea that the parent is obligated to give. But with pure grace, there is no action that is an obligation to the giver. There's no pressure. There's not even a sense of public opinion or do you look fair or not? Do you look just or not? The giver gives with no compulsion, no pressure. And the receiver receives without having contributed at all to the need for the gift. In other words, the, the pure grace is not only without obligation on the part of the giver, 
but it's totally also without merit on the part of the receiver. It's totally pure grace. There's nothing that you and I do or can do or say or even think that would cause pressure to be placed on God to have to give to us. And there's no force or nature or pressure or um, court of law or rule on God that obligates him to give. This is pure, pure grace. I'm not talking about any kind of other tainted grace. This is not me doing something good, like 1%, and then God's grace is 99%, and it adds up to a whole. No. This is zero, zero, zero percent, and 100% God's grace. That is what pure grace is. And I, I want to read to you from Romans 9, because Romans 9 takes this phrase about Jacob and uses him as the prime example of what pure grace is. Not only that, he's in this discussion about grace. He says, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our, same, by our father Isaac. So we got Jacob and Esau and Rebecca's womb, and they got the same conception. They got the same dad. There is no preferential uh, intrinsic characteristic of either Jacob or Esau. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. You, I don't want you to get caught up in the argument here. I want you to sit back and listen to what the text is saying. Before Jacob or Esau had any opportunity to contribute to this conversation before they did anything good or bad they had zero percent to contribute and in order that God's purpose in his choice his election his purpose in his choice is to have it understood that his purpose would stand what does that stand what is that purpose verse 12 it's not by works there's nothing Jacob did to make God have to love him there's nothing that Esau did to make God not love him there's nothing that they did to contribute to this. But it's by him who calls. God's the one who decides. And he told Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, our response is, that is super unfair. And Paul expected that response. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Is this unfair? Is this God doing something wrong? It's not fair. But the answer is not at all. It's not unfair because justice requires everyone to be hated. Justice requires everyone to be punished in hell. We have sinned, and the just wages of sin is death and destruction. So justice alone demands everyone die, everyone perish, everyone go to hell. Is God unjust? No. What does God do in the life of Jacob? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it doesn't depend on something we do, it depends on the eternal counsel and inside desire of God. He decides for some, for Jacob in this case, he decides for no 
external compulsion on him and no merit in Jacob's life, God decides for no reason that we can know to have mercy on Jacob. He overrides his justice and provides mercy for Jacob. Overrides his justice. Not really, because Jesus has to die to pay for him to have mercy on Jacob. So God does not unjust in the way that he distributes his salvation, nor is he unjust in just turning away from evil. God himself in Jesus comes and pays the penalty for our sin and makes it possible for God to do this, to have mercy on us. And the Bible makes it clear that he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. Now, I know it doesn't feel good, and I don't like it either from a human being, but I'm, I'm, I'm just asking you to think about, you have received mercy. It's a gift given to you, not by anything you have done, nor any compulsion on God's part. You have received mercy and compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You see, when God gives pure grace, it totally, totally is without any effort or pressure from us. So what this shows us, pure grace proves that we are truly loved. I am a believer in Jesus. By grace, God opened my heart to give me the ability to trust him through faith. And I have the witness of the Holy Spirit in my heart. And I have my confidence in the promises of the Bible that whosoever comes unto Jesus will be saved. And so I'm persuaded that I'm a believer. But I want you to know that pure grace shows me how valuable I am. What if it depended on me a little bit? What if, what if it even depended on God knowing somehow that someday I'd be a believer in Jesus? Then, then my value is contingent upon my doing, believing, saying something. And I'm only valuable ultimately because of something I did, if that were true. But with pure grace, my value is um, from the giver. How much does Jesus love me that under no obligation whatsoever, no external pressure, no rule on him, that he would actually die for me on the cross and, and make it possible for God to be just in giving me mercy? What I must be so awesome to Jesus, that he would do that only because he wanted to, not because of any merit on my part. You, you see, if it did depend on me, it wouldn't be pure grace, and my worth would be somehow based on me. But because it is pure grace, my worth is infinite, and it's demonstrated by what Jesus does. So pure grace shows that we're loved, and it appears that we're worth, but pure grace proves that we are loved. We are not only valuable, but Jesus himself loves us that way, that much. He's willing to pay the price and to purchase salvation for me. I am loved not by my for performance. There's nothing I can do to change. There's nothing that I can do to be better. God loves me because he loves me. What peace. And it, it pure grace assures our future. Think about it. If, if my relationship with God depended on me, my desire, my effort, then I, as a contingent creature who's constantly in 
the state of becoming. I'm changing. I'm not pure being. I'm a becoming. And so I'm in the state of, of, of flux. I'm always changing. It would be possible over time for me to change my perspective on God. Maybe I could even turn away from him. You see, if it depended on me, if I was the agent that caused the merit to happen, that caused God to have to give me mercy, then the possibility exists that I could change somehow, that some events would occur or that I would stumble or that I would love something else more, or that some torture would be so great that I would scream out and say, no, no, I don't love Jesus. And if I did that change, then I, would, I could lose my relationship with God because it was dependent on me at least a little in the beginning, if it wasn't pure grace. But since it is pure grace, and there was nothing I brought to the table to make God want to or have to love me, and there's nothing outside of God to make him love me, he just does because it's his decree, he wants to have mercy on me, then I can't change enough to get out of his love. Nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Neither death, nor, nor famine, nor sword. There's nothing that can separate us because there was nothing that it depended on in the first place. It's pure grace. There's only love that way. So pure grace shows how much we're worth. Pure grace pr proves that we're loved. It, it, we're loved totally, not because of our performance. And pure grace assures our future. And we could go on and on listing what pure grace means to us. But I want to close with pure grace makes us sing. This is the kind of news that I'm telling you, even a, a phlegmatic, melancholy person like mine, I can sing on this one. I can shout because pure grace makes us sing. I understand how great it is. Look at this. God, the creator who created everything out of nothing, chose to create me as a person as well. And, and Jesus does not fail as the king. And Jesus does not fail to be victorious over all of his enemies. And he successfully purchases the right to save me. And he wants to save me. And he does. And he does so by his own love and grace. And so the mighty king, the mighty creator who created it all, created me as a person, and then now has brought me into relationship to him that cannot be removed, that does not depend on her performance, I can't do anything bad enough to get out of it. What a wonderful, wonderful piece of news. Pure grace makes us sing. Let's read with the psalmist. God has ascended amid shouts of joy. Amen. The Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. It makes sense. It's the response. Look at how many times the psalmist says, sing, sing, sing. You are the great God the mighty chooser. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. Well, I hope it makes your heart sing. If you get it, if we get what it means to have God's grace in our life, if we could comprehend what it means, when we get that, when we understand what Jesus has done, we have no choice but to overflow with joy and gratitude. No wonder no wonder it changes our life. Father in heaven, I do not deserve your love. I'm so grateful that you had mercy on me. I cannot understand why, but I'm so grateful. Thank you for loving me that much. Thank you for teaching me how to love you back. 
Thank you for giving me all eternity, most certainly, to grow, to love you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. If you would like to learn more about our church, please visit us at wpbiblefellowship.org. Have a great week.